0: The following has been prepared solely for informational purposes, and it is not an offer or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any security. The information presented today is the opinion of the firm and is not intended as investment advice and should not be used as such. Welcome to Biblically Based Wealth Management with your host, Kevin Bruce. On this show, Kevin combines academic, behavioral, and biblical financial principles to separate the wheat from the chaff in investing and retirement planning. Now, here's your host, Kevin Bruce. I want to ask you the most important financial question that you will ever be asked. That question is, in whom do you place your financial faith, man or God? Because whether you know it or not, you've already made a decision and placed your financial faith. So we're going to explore that question and you two answer choices to see which one makes the most sense for you. All financial matters require faith, whether you're religious or not. For example, if you've ever put money in a 401k, an IRA account, a savings account, a stock, or a mutual fund, then what you have done is acted upon your belief. You made that investment because you have faith that it will grow over time. Another example would be retirement planning. Retirement plans typically require you to project your expected lifestyle, your income and expenses, growth rates, tax rates, 20 to 50 years down the road. When the reality is, we don't even know what's gonna happen tomorrow, let alone in 30 years from now. Nonetheless, we build retirement plans and have faith that if we adhere to them, we'll have a favorable outcome. Now, I'm not saying this to knock retirement planning and investing. I do believe they are both prudent, wise, and necessary to build a foundation for financial success. But what I am saying is that you must take extra care to know what is your foundation built upon. Or put another way, in whom have you placed your financial faith, man or God? Now, let's turn to what are the differences between our two options. And I think the best place to start is with their underlying assumptions. So let's first take a look at man, or what we'll call man's financial theories, or probably a better term for it is just traditional finance. Now, these assumptions, and we're going to cover five of them, are inseparable from certain financial theories that are of the utmost importance to wealth management, meaning if these assumptions don't hold true, then neither does the theory. And just to give you some perspective, the theories we're talking about, modern portfolio theory and the efficient market hypothesis have both won Nobel Prizes in economic science. These theories are widely used and considered the bedrock of many wealth management firms and academia worldwide. But before we get into the five assumptions, there's one thing you have to understand. And that is, in the academic world, before you can model a behavior, you first need to isolate it. And in economics, it becomes very difficult because what you're essentially trying to do is isolate the cause and effect of a financial decision from the very people who are making them. So the way that academia addresses this problem is by making what is referred to as simplifying assumptions, meaning human behavior is far too varied and complex to incorporate into a model, right? I mean, individuals, we don't know what they're gonna do from one moment to the next, and it would vary from person to person. So in order to make life easier for the researcher, let's just assume that everyone acts the same way, like robots. So now that you understand the way academia looks at humankind, let's just move into the five underlying assumptions of traditional finance. And what I'm going to do is I'll first read them to you and then we'll go through them one by one to check their validity. So now we're looking at the underlying assumptions of traditional finance. Number one, everyone acts rationally at all times. Number two, everyone receives the same information at the same time. Number three, Everyone updates their expectations in the same way and at the same time. Number four, everyone is knowledgeable of all investment options. And number five, everyone makes the most selfish decision at all times, regardless of how it may affect others. Now, let's look at each one of those in turn and see if they pass the sniff test. Number one, everyone acts rationally at all times. Well, I don't know about you, but I've never met anyone who acts rationally at all times. Certainly I've met people that act more rationally than others, but nobody who acts rationally all the time. So I'm just gonna go ahead and give this one a fail. Number two, everyone receives the same information at the same time. Well, you know, there's a good portion of the nation that's still in bed by the time some of us are getting to work, uh, maybe even going to our lunch break. So we're gonna go ahead and say fail to that one as well. Number three, everyone updates their expectations in the same way and at the same time. Again, fail. I mean, let's be honest. At this point in time, we can't even agree on what the definition of a man and a woman is. How on earth could we assume that everyone has the same thought process for updating statistical probabilities? Number four, everyone is knowledgeable of all their investment options. Well, I worked full-time on a team of professional investment analysts, and we were tasked with reviewing new investment offerings. And there were so many of them We only had time to focus on the most robust offerings. There were hundreds, probably thousands that we never even looked at. And and even under that scenario, it would take us weeks or months to get things reviewed. And, And I'm talking about people with the highest credentials that did this for a living full time. So I'm going to say fail to this one because there's no way that one person could be knowledgeable of all investment options, let alone everybody. And finally, number five, everyone makes the most selfish decision at all times, regardless of how it affects others. Well, if this was true, charitable organizations would not exist. So we can give this one a fail. So let's go ahead and tally up the valid assumptions of traditional finance, and we get a zero out of five. Zero out of five underlying assumptions of traditional finance pass the sniff test. In fact, I think if you were asked to write a list of five things that are the furthest from actual human behavior, you would be hard-pressed to create a list that does a better job than the five underlying assumptions of traditional finance. So that summarizes the underlying assumptions of traditional finance. Now let's turn to the underlying assumptions of biblical finance. And here there's only two. And those two are number one, there is a God. And number two, the Bible is God's instruction for mankind. So the good news here is that there's only two, but the bad news is you either believe them or you don't. It's kind of hard to apply the sniff test to this one because if you're a Christian or you believe in God, then you'll just say, yep. And if you're not, you'll say, nope. And how do we deal with that? Well, And of course, there's some people that are listening right now that maybe aren't sure yet. So I think what we'll do is just kind of go along the line of logic. So let's think about this. If proof is what we require, well, then there's certainly proof that the five underlying assumptions of traditional finance are false, both individually and in their entirety. So you tell me what makes more logical sense to put your faith in something that you know is wrong or to put your faith in something that you're unsure of. Now, some of you are probably, wait a minute, hold up, hold up. I've never seen any equations in the Bible. What are you talking about biblical finance? And, you know, while the exact number of times that the Bible references money is debated, one commonly quoted number from Howard Dayton's research states that there are over 2,350 verses about money and possessions in the Bible, which is more than the Bible mentions both prayer and faith combined. However, one could argue that, hey, you know, just because money is mentioned in a passage doesn't mean that that's the message in the passage or the point of the story. And I could certainly agree with that. However, regardless of what the exact number may be, I think it's safe to say it's still a prominent recurring topic in the Bible. And another related subject of debate is how many of Jesus's parables were about money and wealth. And depending on how you define a parable and the context of it, the answer can range from about twenty to 45 percent. And, we, you know, we'll let the theologians work out that exact number, but again for our purposes we can safely assume that Jesus had a lot to say about money, wealth, and our management of it. And the focus today isn't to get into the specifics of biblical financial principles. We will have other shows to do that, but today we just want to make the case that biblical financial principles are worthy of your consideration. And I would argue your devotion. And just to dive a little bit deeper on what are these theories that rely upon these assumptions. Well, the Nobel Prize in Economic Science was awarded for modern portfolio theory and the efficient market hypothesis in 1990 and in 2013, respectively, for research that was done in the 1950s and 60s. And interestingly enough, in 2013, the Nobel Prize in Economic Science was awarded and shared by three individuals, two of which were Eugene Fama and Robert Schiller. The interesting fact about Eugene Fama and Robert Schiller is that they had and still have opposing views and research and conclusions. Eugene Fama, his research demonstrated that the market is efficient. Robert Schiller's research demonstrated that the market is inefficient. So two diametrically opposed views shared the same Nobel Prize in economic science. So let me just stop there and clarify what I just said one of the two academic theories that is most relied upon by many wealth management firms worldwide received a Nobel Prize but shared that same prize with equal research that showed that that theory was false. So this is like kids' sports today where everyone gets a ribbon and everyone wins. But in reality, everyone loses because now we don't know what to believe. Now you may be wondering why if there was two Two opposing theories, one got all the attention and wealth management and finance has adopted that one where the other one has basically fallen by the wayside. The efficient market hypothesis is more palatable for academia. It's easier to line up things and to build models upon and to extrapolate and to build new ideas off of some, a simplified version of the world. And in contrast, biblical financial principles have been around for thousands of years and still hold true today. So I'd like to pause here for a minute to stop and clarify. We've been comparing the assumptions of traditional and biblical finance and the absurdity of traditional financial assumptions. However, I am not saying that you should ignore traditional financial principles or that principles of traditional and biblical finance are mutually exclusive, that you can only have one and not the other. I believe traditional financial principles have their place and can illustrate important relationships and ideas and, in fact, I utilize some of them in my practice every day, but I believe that traditional financial principles are a tool to help you achieve a broader goal, but aren't sufficient enough by themselves for you to rely solely upon. My personal belief and the philosophy of my firm is that we start with the foundation of biblical financial principles and then combine them with traditional and behavioral financial principles to offer what we call integrated advice. And that is the driver of our biblically-based wealth management approach. So let's recap. We've examined where you can place your financial faith, man or God. We've looked at the underlying assumptions that you must believe to be true depending on where you place your faith. Now, before we turn to the real world outcomes of both approaches, let's take a quick test. So here's a test. And the idea of this test is to give you an idea of where you have already placed your financial faith. So think about what has been the primary driver of your financial decisions over the course of your life. And I'll give you three answer choices. Would you say that typically your financial decisions are based upon, one, what you think will offer you the highest and best return? Two, what you think offers the lowest risk of loss? Or three, what you believe you are called to do with your money, regardless of how you feel about it? Or a more blunt way of asking the same question would be, would you say your financial decisions are typically based on greed? fear, or faithful stewardship? Because your answer to that question should be a pretty good indicator of where you're at currently. And the good news is that if you're unhappy with your answer, it isn't too late to change it. And in case you're wondering how your answer may compare to others, the fact is most people put their faith in man, not because they don't believe in God, but because most financial education, financial literature, and subsequent financial advice is based on man's financial theories, not God's. So you're probably asking yourself right now, well, if traditional finance is so flawed, then why is it so prevalent in our society, even amongst God-fearing, church-going people? And I think there's enough blame to go around. As individuals, we can take some blame for not trying very hard to educate ourselves, right? Most people rather do other things in their free time than study finance. Our education system basically teaches us nothing about financial decisions. Short of you know going to college and majoring in finance, very little, if anything, is taught or even required of you to get a high school diploma or a college degree. Even our churches, broadly, don't spend the time to teach us wise financial principles. They may read a verse or two right before the offering of the tithe, but they typically don't make it a point To educate their members on financial principles even though financial principles are found throughout the Bible and then even within our own family units typically little is done to teach financial principles to our children but then again how can we teach something that we don't even know so what are the implications what are the outcomes of following man's financial principles instead of God's if we take God out of the equation mankind is left making financial decisions based on emotions and unrealistic expectations, both of which lead to disappointment. Because, as you well know, emotions can change quickly and are not always rationally based. Although they may feel right at the time and they might seem like a good idea, your emotions do change, yet you're stuck with whatever decisions you made during that time of euphoria. And of course, Regarding unrealistic expectations, any endeavor that relies upon them is just bound to fail. It's just a matter of time until it does. And I think it's it's probably safe to say within the last year, we've all had something canceled on us. We all were looking forward to something that was either delayed or just canceled. A gathering, a trip, an event, something that we were planning on. And just think about it for a moment. How did you feel? Or how do you feel when something that you had planned for, something that you were looking forward to suddenly isn't going to happen? Or at least it isn't going to happen when you were expecting it to? What kind of emotions come to mind? Anger, frustration, disappointment, impatience? These emotions are intensified when we're dealing with financial matters because if you fail to meet a financial goal, the consequences can be devastating. Because you know there is no reset button, you can't restart at ground level you need to dig your way out of whatever financial hole that you've dug to get back to square one all the while the clock keeps ticking this not only affects us you know at the time that occurs but also affects our future financial decisions and typically one of three emotions becomes the underlying driver of our future financial decisions those emotions being fear greed or confusion If it's fear, we want to protect ourselves and prevent another unfavorable outcome. This leads us to being too conservative, not taking enough risk, not giving ourselves an opportunity to achieve the return that's necessary to meet our goals. If it's greed, then we feel like we need to make up for lost time. We need to get back what we deserve and then some. This has us take on too much risk, beyond the risk necessary to meet our goals and quite possibly to the detriment of our goals. And then confusion. We don't know what to do or we second guess ourselves. This has us overly dependent upon somebody else. And that could be a friend or a family member, someone who in theory we should be able to trust. And typically they have our best interest at heart. However, our friends and our family members typically don't have the expertise or the details of our specific financial circumstances to offer appropriate advice. I think we could sum up much of what we see today in the market and with investors with those three words fear, greed, and confusion. We're about out of time, so I'd like to leave you with a Bible verse that addresses today's topic and to give you hope. Jeremiah 17:5 through 8. This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who draws strength from mere flesh and whose heart turns away from the Lord. That person will be like a bush in the wasteland. They will not see prosperity when it comes. They will dwell in the parched places of the desert and a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. I appreciate your time today. Please tell your friends. I'll be here next week, God willing. And may God bless America.